Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. Just before we get started, I'd like to let you know that there will be a special edition of the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Roundtables, an anthology coming out on the topic of equity. This session will feature a compilation of thinking on equity by our many experts over the past year. Pedro Naguera and I will kick off this live session on February the 23rd. Join us by following the link in this episode's description on knowledgehook.com leadership. Back to today's episode, where we'll hear from one of the most influential education researchers coming out of the UK, Alma Harris. Professor Harris worked for years out of University College London, UCL, before moving to Swansea University in Wales, where she continues to lead the charge in supporting school and system leaders. Alma walks us through her educational research journey, from the concept of distributive leadership to the need for a system recall. All of us, as educational leaders in classrooms, in schools, and in school systems, can benefit from Alma's sage advice. Hello, Alma. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be having you here with us today. Really thrilled to be here and have the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is distributed leadership. Alma, I remember throughout my career, seeing your name come up at conferences and seeing research articles and, and books that would come out and the work that you did and continue to do just really struck home with leaders around the world. And uh, I have the option and the opportunity to say thank you for that and to have our listeners learn a little bit more about what that work looks like. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. And my position has always been one where I see myself as uh, the profession's professor. Uh, maybe that's a a slightly, you know, exaggerated term, but it seems to me that most of my work has been around and focused upon teachers, teaching, schools, and school improvement. We certainly need that guidance, that's for sure. Alma, tell me a little bit about your background. Where did that focus on leadership in education, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I have to go back into the annals of time to, to think about it. But I started my career as a teacher in, in quite a a difficult uh, school setting. And I guess, you know, I realized then the, the importance of leadership and how different forms of leadership can impact on the organization. And of course, we know now that there's lots of research that shows that to be the case. I worked for a while in the business arena. And again, that message kept on hitting home the importance of, of leadership and the importance of leading organizational change. So when I then did my PhD, I became even more interested in the process of change and what. It's not accidental that some schools are great and, and some schools are good. It, it's actually a function of the organizational culture and the way leaders interact with that culture. So I became very interested in, in exploring that in more depth. And uh, since then, of course, I've looked at system level improvement as well. But overall, my focus on leadership is primarily because we know the evidence will tell us that um, in terms of schools anyway, leadership is only second to curriculum and teaching when it comes to improving learner outcomes. So it's a, it's a pretty big lever to pull when we think about organizational change. 
It is, Alma, and that's why that research was so important because we know that the teacher in front of the classroom is the number one factor. But when you think that school leadership is the number two factor for influencing and and that variable on student learning and student achievement, it really a acknowledges the really important role that school leaders have, and secondly really inspires us to be thinking about how we're doing that role and what are the practices that make the biggest difference. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is the interconnection between, you know, leadership and teaching. And I guess, you know, the whole work on instructional leadership, which is huge in North America, and I think very influential, reminds us that it isn't just leadership for leadership's sake, it's leadership to make a difference to the quality of learning that happens in classrooms for all learners, not just some learners. So that's the power of teacher leadership, but that's the power of leadership right across the piece. That is so true, Alma. And my experience being in uh, large school districts in, in Canada was that when we turned the conversation with our school principals, elementary and secondary, to this concept of instructional leadership, there was a number of things that happened. It gave them, particularly the secondary principals, it gave them a whole new lease on how they looked at their roles. And the second thing it did, it really brought them closer to their teachers because suddenly they were at the table, they were doing professional learning communities, they were sitting and learning together as the lead learner as opposed to the formal principal leader. And that really shook things up. It had a huge impact. And, and some of your work was very much the incentive to go in that direction. Well, I think that the whole evidence base, and again, North America leads the way in, in this, around teacher leadership. It's, it's, a, it's a funny idea that the teachers can be leaders when you think about leadership in its more formal sense. And most teachers will say to me, I'm not a leader. I'm a classroom practitioner. But then you say, so what do you spend your days doing? You're influencing you know, others, you're influencing peers. Well, if leadership is anything, it's influence. So you are actually a teacher leader. And I think that recognition that leadership is not the preserve of an individual, the name on the door, but actually is a set of influences within an organization and everybody has influence. So I think your point about the connection between leadership and teaching and learning is a really important one because what are we leading for in schools? Who are we leading for? It's really about the core business, which is around teaching and learning or learning and teaching, whichever way around you want to, to think about it. But primarily, that's what leadership is in a school setting. It's about influencing uh, everybody in that organization so that uh, learning improves. Alma, when I first discovered your work, it was your books that were out on distributive leadership. And, you know, looking back now, it's almost surprising to think that there was any other kind of leadership because it's so intuitive that why would you count on the leadership? You know, if you have a, a school organization with 100 faculty, why would you count on all the leadership happening with one out of 100 players? as opposed to many of those 100 players, depending on where they are in their career and their different interests, et cetera. Tell us about how that emerged, that concept of distributive leadership, and, and really what were you fighting against, the norm for leadership at that time? I think what I was discovering was that there was such a thing as adjectival leadership. So you put an adjective in front of the word leadership, and then you've got a new model, a new way of thinking about it. And I guess I was a little bit tired of the passionate leadership, political leadership, creative leadership uh, coming up 
And I just intuitively, I felt, as I just described, that in an organization, then leadership is the preserve of the many rather than the preserve of the few. And you see that time and time again. We know the influence of a very energetic teacher in a, in a staff room. We know how great district leaders can be in mobilizing change. Well, in a sense, it, it struck me that leadership wasn't necessarily about role. And yet everything we read about leadership, if you go into any bookshop uh, anywhere in the world, if you can still go into bookshops now, you'll find that in the leadership section, it's largely about I did it my way sort of leadership, and it's largely male and white. And, and yet everything about schools and school districts screams that that's not the way the leadership is, and indeed it's not the way leadership should be portrayed. So I was very fortunate early in my career to, to come across the work of Jim Spillane from uh, Northwestern University in Chicago, who was writing about distributed leadership theory. And it, 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 set, it sort of goes back to a piece of very seminal work in psychology that focused on a naval ship and basically argued that with the complexity of an organization like a naval ship, then leadership inevitably had to be distributed. It had to be shared. The influence couldn't be just the influence of one person in such a complex organization. And that, I think, really struck home for me as an idea. And I guess Jim's really seminal work around distributed leadership theory got me to thinking about the practice. Now, Jim and I disagree on many things, and we agree on distributed leadership, but we disagree in terms of our perspective on it because Jim really has a theoretical handle and an analytical handle on it. Whereas I'm more interested in the practice. What does it look like in schools? Can we make any predictions around it in terms of organizational improvement and student learning outcomes? So that's where my interest started because it sort of spoke to everything that I'd seen in schools. And I guess it provided us with a brand new lens on what leadership looked like in complex organizations. And as you know, a school is a pretty complex organization with many moving parts. So suddenly, uh, rather than a new adjective for leadership, which I don't think it is, it, it provided a new perspective and a new way of understanding how these different parts moved around and how those parts, when they connected and when they were collaborative, when they were purposeful, actually resulted in positive organizational change. I can't tell you, Alma, how important your work was because, you know, school leaders, when you're heading down a pathway like this, it's really good for us to be able to point to some academic research that says this actually works. I think many of our leaders are naturally bent in the way of doing distributive leadership. But when you had the research to be able to show that this actually does have an impact, it gave us permission to go into that direction. So, you know, it was hugely influential. Obviously, it taught us about it, but it actually gave us permission to be able to go in that direction. Such an important role. And I, th I think the other thing that was absolutely clear was that the research evidence was also saying positive things about the relationship between distributed leadership and organizational change and, and indeed some evidence around student learning outcomes. In, in many respects, the whole research around distributed leadership was playing catch-up to other forms of leadership like instruction and transformation that have been around for some while. But you are right, and it is still the case, 10 years on since we did the seven strong claims around leadership, that distributed leadership still remains very prevalent in two of those claims and the evidence base is just simply shored up exactly how important distributed leadership is. 
in terms of organizational change. The important thing is, though, that it's not a panacea. You know, you can't just pluck it out of the air and say, we'll distribute leadership now and magically things will happen. Other conditions have to be in place. And, and therefore, I think it speaks to the complexity of some of those conditions and the importance of some of those conditions. Tell us about those conditions, Alma. Well, I think the main condition, and, and someone like Karen Seashaw Lewis has written about this, is the importance of trust. I mean, you can't have distributed leadership without high levels of trust, high levels of collaborative skill, high levels of, uh, I guess, engagement and empowerment, because ultimately it comes down to everyone in the organization being able to work together for the overall purpose of, of that organization's health, um, but also its improvement. But I think if you superimpose distributed leadership on a dysfunctional organization, then it's just not going to work. It can't work. There has to be certain foundational conditions in place. You know, there has to be a certain level of organizational health. Because let's be honest, distributed leadership is quite a sophisticated form of leadership because it requires that interaction, that empowerment, that teacher leadership, that sense of collective energy and agency. And that is quite a sophisticated form of leadership when it's in action. So the other thing I think I've highlighted many times is that distributed leadership isn't delegation. It's, it's not giving people jobs you really wouldn't rather do yourself. It's actually saying, and this is quite a profound question, and I always ask this when I do my talks on distributed leadership, because it does, I think, uh, hit home the importance of what the conditions are. And the question is this. Um, what's the most pressing issue facing you in your organization at your school today? And then the supplementary question is, and who's best place to help you solve that problem? And the answer here is, it's not always the usual suspects. It could be the new teacher in the school. It could be the literacy person. And I think that really hits home the importance of levels of trust that say, I may be the head teacher, I may be the principal, but I cannot solve every single problem this organization faces. So I better borrow all the brains I can and all the capability and all the expertise that I have within my organization, because then I have a really good chance of solving that problem that we're facing. That's such a great way of framing it, because the danger is that you may, as a leader, think, well, I've got all of these situations I'll give the easiest ones away, or I'll give the ones that, like you said, things that I'm not really interested in, or it's not my skill set, or I, I don't really like doing that kind of work, and you distribute all that. If you really think and ask yourself the question, what's the most challenging issue I have, and then think about the people that will help you lead that, that's a really nice way of framing it to make sure it doesn't slide into that other approach. And in a way, it's really about distributed expertise and that was the way the naval ship was characterized in that study it's everybody has expertise in an organization but the problems that occur you have to have the right expertise to solve those problems and this is why i think distributed leadership is leadership with humility because you have to recognize in yourself as the leader the formal leader of that organization that you may not be best placed to solve that problem so you have to have the humility to say you know what actually there's a group of teachers here as a professional learning community. Maybe you can help me solve that problem because problems, as you know, are not necessarily predictable in a school. So uh, as we've seen during COVID times, you know, the biggest challenge has been 
solving problems for which we've had no precedent, no blueprint, and no solutions. In some ways, Alma, it's almost the democratization of leadership. It's seeing that everyone has a role to play in it. And the second thing that it made me think of is it was good modeling for teachers. You know, when you think over the last couple of decades, how teachers have moved towards in their classroom, they're not seeing themselves as the authoritarian leader in that classroom either or in learning. They are building relationships with their students. They are establishing routines and organizational patterns so that there is student agency and that the students are co-leading the learning either for themselves or in small groups, etc. So in, in a way, it's kind of shifted what's happening in the classroom or is at least a reflection of what's happening in the classroom as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and in a way, as we've learned through COVID times, distributed leadership has just been the norm because there's been no other way of leading an organization remotely. Now, it's a distributed leadership has ultimately become part of the, the, the network solution to what we've been facing during COVID. But there is a sort of caveat, it's an important one that I wanted to raise. And I've written about this, that there is a dark side of leadership um, and there's a dark side of distributed leadership because when influence becomes part of an agenda that isn't authentic, then you will quickly find that people will walk away from distributed leadership. They'll say things like, well, we tried that once in our school and it didn't work. And what they mean by that is that it wasn't authentic, that it was a form of semi-delegation, a form of semi-coalition. And again, Andy Hargreaves has written quite extensively about the limitations of this model when it's put into a context where the conditions aren't right. And that's why I keep on saying the conditions have got to be right. And I think you've got one chance at it authentically before teachers will say, well, actually, it's a label for something else. It isn't quite distributed leadership. It's delegation or it's uh, autocratic leadership, the more palatable label. So I think it's important to remember that with all forms of leadership, there is always a dark side, the way it is used, the way it is in, imposed on an organisation, the uh, intentions behind it. And I think that's where transparency and trust are the two foundational conditions that allow this to happen authentically. It's like everything we do in education, right? If it's done in the right way, it is very positive, has a huge positive impact on the students, on the staff, on the parents and the communities. When we do things the wrong way, i.e. we mandate them and say that it shall be done this way, or we put it in a context of policy where it doesn't match at all, or we don't give the time or the training or the reflection time to people that are learning about this before they actually do it, that's where it's going to go wrong. Any good intended transformation, if it's done the wrong way or with the wrong intent, is going to have a very negative outcome. Absolutely. And I think one of my concerns about distributed leadership very early on was that uh, policymakers got hold of it as a concept and misrepresented it in, in many cases and suddenly it became the new buzzword. There was policy confetti everywhere with the words distributed leadership. I was often asked and have been asked in many conferences and training sessions, well, give us the blueprint then, give us the model. My response to that is, even if I had one, which I don't, I don't believe in models and imposition and mandates, because particularly when it comes to leadership, because ultimately it'll look different in different contexts and that's not a cop-out, but it will because schools are different. They're the same because they're schools, but you put two schools next to each other, 
in different jurisdictions and they are miles apart in terms of their culture and their contextual factors. So why would we believe that we could superimpose a model of distributed leadership that was uniform, a one size fits all on all schools and it would work? I would much rather think about the conditions within the organization of which leadership is a pretty important one and not the only one, which allows that organization to grow authentically, to challenge itself, but also to grow in terms of its own knowledge base and its, and its expertise. Because we know from the work on high-performing organizations in other sectors that those things are absolutely pivotally important in terms of moving an organization from good to great. That mindset of conditions for leadership, I think we've talked a lot about the conditions for learning and that learning needs to be nurtured in a certain way. And the same thing with leadership, right? We need to have those conditions and be thinking of the conditions and then be saying, well, if we have those conditions in place, then some of these elements can then be put into place, right? That's right. And I think one of the things that good leaders do is they work on the conditions. Um, They work on trust. They work on transparency. They work on being authentic. They walk the talk. And I think teachers are very good at seeing when that isn't the case and responding accordingly. So, I mean, I think that the the importance of distributed leadership is that it aligns to the the other cultural conditions within school, which allows growth and development and change. And, you know, leadership doesn't have to be the preserve of just one individual. It can move around. As my good friend, Jim Spillan says, you know, it's fluid, it's not fixed. And I think that lateral leadership within an organisation gives a degree of flexibility. Because let's be honest, I mean, if a parent came into a school today uh, and said they wanted to see the principal, it really wouldn't be any good saying, well, we've got distributed leadership here so you can see anyone. <laughs> that formal leadership still has to be in place. And here's the irony that we found from the research is without formal leadership, distributed leadership can't happen. Because the former leadership leaders in the organization have to open those floodgates. I mean, no one is going to rush up to a principal and say, give me more work. That's never going to happen. So it has to be an invitational form of leadership that over time you know, begins to empower teachers to think that they can lead things, not in a grand sense, but in a small classroom-based sense, in a professional learning community, in a network. That is leadership in action. That is distributed leadership in action. Alma, let's fast forward to, you have just relatively recently put out a book called System Recall. Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that book. The thinking behind that book stems from 20 years of trying to fathom out why it is that certain young people from certain backgrounds don't have the same educational outcomes as others from more advantaged backgrounds. We know that is the case. And I guess looking at the evidence base on improving schools in those contexts, very much would suggest that it's been a rather stop-start approach to improving those schools and largely not that productive in the long term. So I guess I thought about the reasons why that might be. And the conclusion I came to was that the school is the wrong unit of change. When we think about tackling poverty and disadvantage, then the school can only do so much. They can do a lot, but they can't do everything. And the second point I guess I reflected on was if a product is faulty, if you buy something and it doesn't work, then there's a recall of that product if it is faulty from the manufacturer. So system recall is actually 
talking about the system as the unit of change and basically arguing in the book that some systems, by virtue of what they do, by virtue of the policies they enact on a school system, on those young people, are faulty and need to be recalled. So the practices within the system itself are damaging the very young people that the system wants to protect and ensure get the right grades at the end of their school career. So the big message in the book, which is a small book, so it's a big message in a small book, is about the importance of thinking at the system level about the different component parts of which education is one, but there are others that actually bring a solution to this age-old problem of disadvantage impacting on education achievement. I love the stance that you're taking, Alma, or that you took in that book on this idea of intersectionality and the responsibility of the different sectors. So you're absolutely right. Education alone cannot do this. We need to think about social policy, labor policies within countries, healthcare policies within countries. All of those pieces need to be lined up so that we can get at some of the poverty situations that we're having. I think that that's uh, something that's starting to come out loudly and clearly. And I actually think the pandemic may be helping those conversations. You know, I've never seen such interaction between public health and the education system as we have in the last two years. And I think that there, there was always a sense that we should be more closely connected. I think it's even more obvious now. Children and families need to have access to health care. They need to have access to public health. They need to be healthy so that when they're coming into their schools and and we as education leaders need to be interacting with our partners in that sector more often. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, COVID has shone a spotlight on the underperformance of certain groups of young people in a way that we can't ignore any longer. 1.6 billion young people out of school. Well, my guess is a lot of those young people come from certain sectors of society. Again, we can't turn away from that anymore. But I think in the book, and in what you've just been saying, if we can come together and solve an issue like COVID, which is unprecedented, you know, no sense of how we would deal with a pandemic, then surely, surely we can come together with the different levels of expertise we have, say social policy, medical profession, social work, can come together and solve this age-old problem in education about young people from certain backgrounds not progressing as well as they should. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, talent doesn't have a zip code, right? Talent doesn't realise that it's been born into a disadvantaged context. Talent is just talent. So if, if we focus on the talent of all young people and we believe that every child's got some sort of talent, which I think is the case, then if we come together to release that talent, then we'll be doing a fabulous job in terms of solving this problem of inequity, because this is really what we're talking about, inequity in education. And inequity is different to inequality, and it's not just semantics, because inequality can be reconciled because we can give equal resources, we can give equal support. We can perhaps give more support certain schools in certain jurisdictions or more pressure as we've seen in in, in some cases. But those barriers that stand in the way, those invisible barriers that stand in the way for certain young people, they're the ones I'm talking about and they're the ones that need to be dismantled in terms of the system working coherently in an aligned way to say, 
this is the priority. And controversially in the book, and controversially <laughs> more generally, I say that PISA is a distraction to focusing on the right things rather than focusing on the latest things. Alma, what I like about the book, you start off at that very high level with the different uh, sectors, health, education, etc. Everybody has to be working together to get at poverty. And the next place you go is you don't let education systems off the hook. So you dive into education systems, but instead of going down to what can we be doing in the classroom and what can we be doing at the school level, which there is a fair amount of writing in that area, you go right at the system level and say there are systems that the policy framework within how education is being delivered is so fundamentally flawed that we're not going to be able to get at equity of outcomes for all of our students unless that policy framework starts to change. Tell me a little bit about that. Are there certain elements of the policy framework that you're finding particularly problematic? Let's start with that. Well, I mean, I gave an example of PISA, and, and here's an example of a global, I guess, benchmarking system uh, that focuses on certain sort of outcomes. And the problem with PISA is that it then gets systems to think in certain ways about getting better outcomes. So if you superimpose equity onto PISA, then you'll find that some of the systems who are deemed to be performing quite well in PISA all the time are very inequitable. They have policies in place that actually damage certain groups of young people and present them with the invisible barriers I was talking about. So we seem to get distracted at the system level from the things that really matter. And I think that's what I'm saying in the book, is if we are really, really focusing on inequity as the thing to solve, and, and we should be post-COVID or, you know, if we are post-COVID, but we should absolutely be focusing on that because it's being a red hot spot like Sean on it, then we need to be brave enough to say, actually, this is not in alignment with our core mission as an education system of improving the life chances of every child, improving the education attainment of every child. And that's what I mean about policies being in place that distract us from that and get us into other places where we think that PISA is the most important thing. And then we get PISA policies actually negatively impacting upon the system because we've focused on the wrong thing rather than the right thing. It's interesting that you say that, Alma, because when I would be asked to go and, and speak in another country or at a conference or whatever and talking about, you know, the Canadian education system or what was happening in Ontario, and of course, both do quite well in the PISA assessments, the slide that I would always show, I would say this is the PISA slide that makes me the most proud as coming from the education system in Ontario or Canada. And it was the slide where they would produce, um, it was basically on equity. And they would compare the countries as far as the countries that had the gap between the highest performers and the lowest performers. And that's where Canada came out very well, came out very much at the top of that list. And that's what I spent my most of my time talking about that, because it's systems that are able to have the kind of instructional practices that help all learners have good responses. That's what makes a quality education system that kind of gets back to something that we were talking about before. Any 
movement, any strategy, any piece can be done if we do it the wrong way, it can have incredibly negative repercussions. And so there may be, you know, a need to be kind of looking at what's happening in the best education systems around the world, but making sure that there is an opportunity to really describe them in full, as opposed to ending up with a ranking system. We know from research that there's so many elements that describe what good education looks like. We need to get better at describing that. Yeah, we do. And, and I think that what we need is not more policy borrowing. Um, I think we need more policy learning, which is understanding why systems perform the way they do with Pisa or Tim's or on the equity indicators that you were talking about. And I guess the danger is that we superficially look at the high-performing PISA countries and we extrapolate from that things are, that are not contextually accurate. And there's a wonderful diagram that I always show when I'm talking about PISA. And I'm not against PISA, but I think PISA needs to be put in its place amongst other, a lot of other things. And that's the relationship between PISA scores and the consumption of ice cream. And there's a pretty positive correlation between those two things, according to this particular graph. And therefore, you would make the assumption, if correlation is causation, that if you eat more ice cream, you do better in pizza. Now, that's the nonsense of those relationships. But we need to be looking deeply at a, at a system, not superficially. We need to be looking contextually at a system to understand, like in Canada, why you do so well around equity is because basically it's in your DNA. Finland, that uh, democratic approach to education is in its DNA. You can't just copy that overnight. But what Canada and Finland have in common is, yes, they're both high-performing on PISA, but equity isn't a byproduct of that. It's actually at the heart of your education systems. Yeah, exactly. And actually, just to, to finish off, Elma, you brought it into kind of countries that are starting to do some of this system recall, or they've already kind of created a culture where this kind of work can be taking place. Do you see any countries right now that are doing a shakeup? Are they doing that system recall? They're looking at their policies and they're making a real change to try to make sure that they're getting to a point where their education systems are really serving all of their children. Can you give us an example of that? I can give you an example, and it might come as a surprise because that's Singapore. And before COVID, the Minister of Education in Singapore was on a public platform and said, we've been winning the wrong race. And what he meant by that was, we've been winning the PISA race, but is it the right race? Because if you look at the data on a very small country like Singapore, it is clear that certain young people are still marginalised certain young people are not achieving what they should be achieving. So I think if a country like Singapore can hold the mirror up to itself and say, yes, we're doing brilliantly at certain things, but there are other things we're not doing that well at, and maybe they're the things that are important. So it's almost a recognition that there's a need, I think, now after COVID, a need to take stock on what really matters. You know, Andy Hargreaves and Michael Fullen's great book, What's worth fighting for out there? And I think that's a question that every single system should be asking itself right now. What's the most important thing? What will we go to the wire for? And if it's equity, let's put all our energies into that and get that right. Let's not get distracted by other things. So 
I think that question, what's really worth fighting for? If you're a school, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a member of a community or a district, what will you go to the wire for? And it can't be 20 things. It's got to be one thing. And that could be that consistent one thing over time. What a great example, Alma, because when you see a country like Singapore that is saying, we're winning, but that's not good enough because we're not winning necessarily at the right thing. If a country that's winning is willing to do that deep search and move their policy agenda, shake it up so that it's actually meeting the needs of all their students, it's inspiring for all of us to be heading in that direction. I think that's right. And I think the recognition of the importance of well-being, students' mental health, I think that we can't turn away from that. I mean, the, all the evidence, we always see the evidence recently as highlighted the negative impact that COVID has had on certain young people. It's not all negative because young people have learned things through COVID as well. They become more resilient. So it's not all bad news. But I think it's really brought home in quite an acute way that we just cannot ignore the well-being of young people because well-being of young people ultimately means the way that they learn in classrooms. So there are some things that are way more important to get right so that all young people, and I mean all young people, have the best chance possible of succeeding in education, but also succeeding at life. Alma, I know that I'm speaking on behalf of the listeners. We can't wait to hear about your next research. And it sounds like you're moving very much into that leadership and equity, leadership and well-being. And we can't wait to hear your findings of the next work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to having a follow-up conversation at some point. My pleasure. It's been a wonderful conversation. And uh, I hope that your listeners have uh, gained something from the conversation. But ultimately, my parting message is it's equity and excellence. It's equity, not in spite of excellence, but it's excellence through equity. Thank you so much, Elma. We'll see you next time. Thanks to Alma for joining our podcast today and for sharing her reflections on leadership in education. Alma was extremely influential in helping many of us shift to more distributive and inclusive leadership models. Her research clearly demonstrated that this model supports both teacher and student learning. She's now using her powerful voice to push for an overhaul of education systems to meet current needs, a true system recall. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in a roundtable called Leading for Equity and Excellence, where Alma was a featured panelist. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time for our podcast with UCL professor Victoria Shawanmi, where she'll be sharing her thoughts and research on Black girls and well-being in schools. Thank you.